right. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 5. And our sermon text this morning uh, is Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, the 2020 presidential election is in full swing. The incumbent president has begun his campaign and the opposing party is holding its primaries and debates. Come November, though, all the talking will be over, hopefully. And the voters will have the say about who will be the president of the United States for the next four years. Ultimately, it's up to the people. Who is the most worthy candidate? Who has the best resume? Who has the most experience? Who has the best policies? Who looks the most presidential? The voters will need to be answering these sorts of questions leading up to the election. And I think sometimes some of these same questions can somehow sneak into how we think about being a Christian. So I'm not talking about Christian leadership. The Bible indeed gives us definite guidelines and qualifications for those who would be leaders in the church. What I'm thinking about is just being a Christian, most basically. What does a Christian need to look like? Who is the most worthy candidate for Christianity? Who, who looks the most Christian-y? Especially in the local church, I think we can start developing assumptions about who looks like a Christian. Who would fit in our congregation? Who would be acceptable to our faith? On the passage we just looked at, we see Jesus himself give the qualifications for anyone who would follow after him. Who is the best candidate for Christianity? Who has Jesus come to reach and to call to himself? Let's look to God's word in the book of Luke to find out. So if you've been with us in our study in this book over the past few months, you'll remember that Luke is a physician in the first century who is writing an account of Jesus' life and ministry based on reliable eyewitness reports. And thus far, we've seen the birth of Jesus and the beginning of Jesus' ministry, including his, his temptation in the desert. And now his ministry is picking up steam. And as it does so, in our passage this morning, we see another disciple called to follow him. And it's a man named Levi. So two simple points to help us find our way through this passage this morning, church. First, let's see the cost. And second, the call. The cost and the call. So first, the cost of following Jesus. Look with me at Luke chapter 5, verse 27. Luke writes, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, 
So Jesus is still in Capernaum. That's kind of his base of operations for now. And he's out and about, and he spots a tax collector at his booth. Uh, for some reason, when I read this, I just think of Lucy and the peanuts at her little booth, you know, 50 cents. But I'm sure it wasn't like that. Uh, Jesus sees this man, and, and the meaning of that word see or saw in the original Greek has the idea of Jesus singling this man out. So he's not just like looking around and being like, oh, look at that guy. He doesn't just bump into him. He pursues him. And the shocking thing about Jesus pursuing Levi is Levi's occupation. We saw this a few months ago in chapter 3, but you might remember to be a tax collector in first century Palestine was to be immensely hated by the Jews. See, the, the land of the Jews at this time was under the authority of Rome, and Rome, as part of their control, would, would tax the Jews, something the Jews hated. But some Jews would capitalize on that tax system. So tax collectors were usually Jews who worked for the Romans to tax their own brothers and sisters in Israel. And if that weren't bad enough, they were also known to sort of work out ways to pocket some of the money for themselves. These men were despised. These men were certainly not good candidates to follow Jesus. Just like the leper we saw last week, this man Levi is also a reject, an outcast, not because of his disease, but because of how he makes his livelihood. But Jesus, Jesus reaches out to him. Jesus pursues this one tax collector in Capernaum named Levi, or, or Matthew, as he's called in another gospel account. And as one scholar puts it, Jesus will not wait for sinners. He will seek them out. The physician seeks out the sick and calls them into the hospital room of God's care. So Jesus approaches Levi there in verse 27 at his tax booth. Presumably Levi was stationed there to tax the travelers going to and fro from Capernaum. And Jesus says to him, follow me. Here's a social outcast this tax collector, and here's the rising Jewish teacher. And Jesus calls him to follow him. What will this following mean for Levi? Luke gives us an insight there in verse 28 when he says, and leaving what? Everything. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed Jesus. So just like we saw Peter and James and John follow Jesus a few weeks ago when David Snyder preached to us at the beginning of chapter 5, here we see another man following Jesus, becoming his disciple. And specifically, Luke wants us to see that Levi left everything to follow Jesus. Now this doesn't mean Luke was all of a sudden on the street and destitute, or Levi. Now we'll see in the next few verses that it appears he still has a house he still has food that he's able to, to serve to those he's having in his house. So it doesn't mean he's out on the street, per se. What it does, does mean is that Luke leaves his old way of life. He leaves ultimate allegiance to anything else in order to follow Jesus. 
This is a principle Jesus teaches throughout the Gospels. If a man or a woman or a boy or a girl is to follow Jesus, it must mean a complete and utter transformation of their entire life. Jesus isn't coming just to be another religious person to follow or another good teacher to esteem. He's coming as a king, as the king, the only one worthy of worship, the only one worthy of ultimate allegiance. So those that would follow him must leave allegiance to everything else. Perhaps you think of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, who was at the opposite end of the social spectrum from this tax collector named Levi. Paul was a religious leader, well-respected by the Jews, devout in his righteousness, his righteous adherence to the law. But even he had to give up, what, everything in which he invested ultimate meaning so he could follow Christ. Remember what he says? He says, but whatever gain I had, which was a lot socially, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul knew what it took to follow Jesus. It cost him. He wasn't the last to see achievement and success as worthless in comparison to knowing Jesus. Uh, so 165 years ago this month, in the year 1855, a young man named C.T. Studd entered a ship bound for China. C.T. had been raised in the company of Britain's elite he had attended the finest schools, including Cambridge University. He had become very successful as an athlete, a, a cricket player, even playing for England's national team. But he had also met Jesus. Jesus had called him like he had called Levi thousands of years before. And C.T. left England to follow Jesus, in a way, leaving everything to become a gospel missionary in the, for the rest of his life in China and Africa. You're probably familiar, many of you, with one of C.T.'s most famous sayings in which he said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Church is not just the superstar missionaries. Every single Christian is called to follow Christ at all costs whatever the cost may be. Look with me there at, at verse 28 again. And, and imagine with me that we're reading along in this verse for the first time. We're reading about Levi, who's probably wealthy from his, his questionable occupation. And imagine we're reading it and we read, and leaving everything but. What if there's a but there? What if Levi had just this one area of his life, this corner, that he was unwilling to give up to follow Jesus? Now, I wonder if, if you have that one thing in your life that's keeping you from really being sold out for Christ. Maybe you would say, leaving everything but my career plans. 
I follow after Jesus. Or, or leaving everything but my dream of an ideal family in the future. I follow after Christ. Or leaving everything but my standing in the eyes of my friends. I follow Jesus. Or, or leaving everything but my home and my comfort. I will run after Christ. Christian, Jesus is worth everything you will have to give up for him. Do you believe that's true? He paid the highest price so you could come to him. And now salvation is free to all who would come, provided you give up ultimate hope in anything else to save you. If you're here and you're a young person, I think this is probably something you've had to think about. Is Christianity worth the cost as you grow up and start leaving your parents' home? I think you're probably learning that there are costs as you enter the workforce and get new friends. There are things you're finding you will have to give up if you keep saying you're a Christian. You're finding that there will be opposition in your experience. It's not a surprise. Jesus promised you would. And remember, the cost that it will take to be a Christian won't earn you your salvation. But it will be what comes with following Jesus in a world that hates Jesus. So, young person, don't believe the lie that life will be easier if you stick with Jesus. It won't. It will cost you. But Jesus promises the reward will be worth it all. One of my favorite preachers, Ray Ortland, says, We pay a price to follow Christ, but we pay a higher price not to follow Christ. If you have questions about what it looks for you, like for you as a teenager or a child to pursue Jesus, talk to your parents, talk to someone in your life who loves Christ and whom you respect and ask them if they think it's been worth it. Socially, personally, has it been worth the cost for them to follow Jesus? Ask them and see what they say. So we see the cost in this passage as Levi leaves everything to follow Christ. But the main point, the main thrust of this passage, I think, is the call itself and, and who this call is for. So if we see the cost, let's spend the rest of our time looking at the call. Look with me at verse 29. And Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So Levi responds to his new king, his new lord, by throwing a party. He's overjoyed at finding Jesus. And it seems like he wants his friends to, to find Jesus and to know Jesus too. But <laughs> turns out his friends are pretty much of the same ilk as he is. Right? They're outcasts too. They're tax collectors too. In verse 30, they're called sinners by the Pharisees. They are not righteous adherents to the law. They are outcasts, immoral, needy. And yet Jesus comes and he, he dines with his newest follower, Levi, and Levi's friends. So if you were running Jesus' campaign, 
and suggesting the best photo op for him to get the Jewish vote, this would not be it. These are the exact people you would not want in the same picture. But these are the exact people Jesus is coming to call. Levi throws this party, and Jesus is not standing far off with his arms folded, scowling. Telling them, hey, if you want to talk about religion, then we'll talk. But otherwise, I'm keeping my distance. He's right there. He's eating and drinking in this scene of welcome and community and enjoyment. But word gets out. After the party is over, the Pharisees hear of this. And they're, let's just say, less than impressed. There in verse 30, we see their complaint. So it's, it's probable the Pharisees, so these Jewish leaders who kind of held Israel in line, were not around this party of the unrighteous. I think it's fair to think that they've heard about it afterwards. And so they come to Jesus' disciples and they say, Why? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? That's a fair question from a pharisaical point of view. If Jesus is a Jewish teacher and he's been teaching in all these synagogues and people have been flocking to him, what business does he have with these types of people? Doesn't he know they're wicked? Doesn't he know they're unrighteous lawbreakers? What's the deal? Jesus hears of the question, and in verse 31, he responds to it with some of the most wonderful passages words in scripture. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. As a preacher, I love it when the Bible just gives you a sermon illustration. And this here is, I think, one of the best. Jesus has been healing the sick But here he uses the idea of sickness and disease to make a point about the purpose of his ministry. Jesus says he's like a doctor who comes to those who are sick, not those who are healthy. It's obvious, right? Those who don't have the flu don't go to the doctor. But if you're running a fever and you have the chills, you should go see your primary care physician. We usually start thinking about doctors when we're worried about getting sick or being sick. Okay, so what's Jesus' point? Well, he's using irony and sarcasm here in a way. He's looking at the Pharisees, these religious elite leaders, who are very impressed with their own righteousness and how they follow God and his law. And he says, okay, I'll come over to your side and look at it from your point of view. From your point of view, you're the righteous ones, and these tax collectors are the sinners. From your point of view, you're the healthy, and these tax collectors are the sick. And so, let me just, let me just look from your point of view and say, yeah, yeah, I haven't come for people like you. He's not saying they don't need him. They don't need salvation. He's saying they don't know they need him. They're fine and healthy in their own eyes. But he's come for those who know they're sinful, who know they're sick. See, we began our time this morning by talking about the best candidates for Christianity. 
And unlike most U.S. presidential candidates this season, the best candidates for Christianity are not usually the most visually impressive or the most experientially qualified. As one author has said, the church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. So you and I, we can't do anything to please God in and of ourselves. Each one of us has rebelled against God and turned our own way. Each one of us has rebelled against God and we know it. We deserve his judgment on our treason. We've taken our allegiance from our creator who loves us and we tried to find meaning and life in so many other things rather than him. And so we deserve his judgment. We, we cannot earn his favor. We are destined for wrath. Unless... Unless he intervenes, and praise him, he has. He has come to save. And the only thing we must do to receive that salvation is to need that salvation and confess that need to God. We, we can't do anything to please God and be saved. We just need to admit that fact, place our trust in him and what he's done to save sinners like us. See, the ultimate sin we must repent of is our sin of self-righteousness. This belief that, that we have needs, but we bring something to the table for negotiation with God for salvation. Jesus is saying, I have not come for those sorts of people. I've come for those who know they are empty-handed and desperately need help. And some of you have not come to Jesus for that very reason. You don't, do not want to admit you need help. Like the stereotypical tough guy who doesn't think he needs the doctor, right? So men are especially infamous for stubborn refusal of medical attention. And I expect people to start looking at each other now. I confess I've been one of them. So uh, uh, Michael Kochman, a gastroenterologist at UPenn, says about this group of people, men are invincible. We are the men of the house. And many hold that to be the truth because they're busy. And it's a sign of weakness to go to a physician even when one is feeling well. Men do not want to appear weak or ill. Church, in our sin, we're all stubborn men. We're all stubborn men who won't go to the doctor. We will not confess we need help. We're self-righteous like the Pharisees. Oh, we might look good on the outside, but inside we are rotting away from the cancer of sin. And unless we get medical attention from the healer of souls, we will perish. As we sang earlier, all the fitness Jesus requires is to feel our need of him. So friend, if you're with us and you're not a Christian, we're so happy you're here. And just so you know, this is not a gathering of really good people. This is a gathering of really bad sinners who have been saved by a really gracious God. We are adulterers. 
You have come into an assembly of gossips and greedy people. Needy sinners deserving God's wrath. And so do you. A doctor has diagnosed you, friend, and you're sick. You're spiritually diseased and headed for death. I wonder, does that offend you? Even if it does, does does it strike you as true? Do you see your, your need? Friend, the only way to be saved by God is to humble yourself and receive salvation from him. He has sent his son to die for you and your self-righteous pride. Go to Jesus and find new life for your soul. And Christians, dear church family, brothers and sisters in Christ, the doctor has healed us. Praise him. But if you're like me, some of the symptoms of that healed disease linger, don't they? We still live longing to be worshipped by others. We still yearn for the lusts of the flesh. We still harbor anger and bitterness towards those who have wronged us. Yes, the symptoms, they hang on. And they will until we're glorified with Jesus. But in the meantime, are you living like a healed sinner? Are you confessing your sins to others? Are you seeking help? Or are you falling back into the stubborn pride that says, oh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. I don't need anything. Dear brother and sister, the church must be the place that that's really not okay to say. We can be real in this church because we all need help even those of us who look most put together. We're in the same boat together. Sinners on the way to glory, battling for holiness every step of the way. So please, friend, Christian, don't stick it out in your sin because of pride. It's just not going to make you happy. Confess your sin. Get help. Talk to other brothers and sisters in the church. And church, there's one last application we must draw from this passage. That is that Jesus saw those in need and pursued them. Even the outcast. I think the application should be clear for us, right? Do you draw back from associating with those who aren't like you? Do you recoil from rubbing shoulders with those whose lifestyles you hold in contempt? You only spend time with people you find comfortable. Or do you go after the tax collectors? Do you pursue relationships with those who know their lifestyle is not what God would command or want? Do you pray for and interact with the, the neighbors or classmates or coworkers who are transgender or atheists or drug addicts? I, I'm not asking you to agree with them or endorse their lifestyle. I'm just asking if you, like Jesus, would pursue them where they are. He pursued you where you were. He pursued me where I was.
In like manner, we must bring the gospel to those who are in need of it. Brothers and sisters, there are people in our communities, at our workplaces, in our families, who know they need help, but they don't know where to get it. They've tried different things, and nothing's panned out for them. But they don't know Jesus yet. Church, these are qualified candidates for Christianity because they know they need help. It's not because they're looked on by the world as more moral or successful or they just look like the Christian type. The best candidates for Christianity are those who look farthest away from it and need help. So will you be the one to tell them Will you be the one to invite them over for a meal, to extend your time and friendship? Will you be the one to share Jesus with them? Will they be welcome in your home? They were welcomed by your Savior. And eternity is at stake. Will you go to them? Church, if Jesus had not pursued us, where would we be? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought, Christian, about your sinful proclivities? And if you didn't really care, where would you be now? Let's extend the same love shown to us, to those around us, to those who are in need of a Savior. As we'll sing in a moment, we were guilty, vile, and helpless, and he was spotless, holy, and blameless. And yet in our need, he came to us to take our vileness on himself so that we can sing that that glorious question full atonement full forgiveness full salvation can it even be is it even possible is it possible that our sins can now be washed away is it possible that we can now be a delight to god righteous in his eyes is it possible can it be that the very god we sinned against has borne our sin in our place can that be Hallelujah, yes it can. Yes it is. What a Savior. A Savior who would pursue not the righteous in their own eyes, but those who were sick. People like us. Let's pray. Lord, we are needy people. We are dependent creatures. Every breath we draw reminds us of our fragile lives. But in our need, you came to give us eyes to see you, eyes to see our sin and faith to trust in you. So we pray for any here today who do not know you. Would you give them the gift of neediness? Would you give them the gift of despair in themselves? For those of us who have followed you, would you keep us leaning constantly on you and on one another, knowing that the church is not 
a social club for the successful, but a hospital for the sick who have been cured and await final fulfillment with Christ. Lord, our only words when we think about this passage is the word hallelujah, praise to the Lord. What a wonderful Savior. Amen. Would you stand?